Section 32 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Tuscan Cities The cities I refer to are Lagorn, Pisa, Lucca and Pistoia, among which I've been spending the last few days. The most striking fact as to Lagorn, it must be considered at the outset, is that being in Tuscany, it should be so scantily Tuscan. The traveller curious in local colour must content himself with the deep blue expanse of the Mediterranean. The streets away from the docks are modern, genteel and rectangular. Liverpool might acknowledge them if it weren't for their clean-coloured, sun-bleached stucco, they are the offspring of the new industry, which is death to the old idleness. Of interesting architecture, fruit of the old idleness, or at least of the old leisure, Lagoon is singularly destitute. It has neither a church worth one's attention, nor a municipal palace, nor a museum and it may claim the distinction unique in Italy of being the city of no pictures. In a shabby corner near the docks stands a statue of one of the elder Grand Dukes of Tuscany, appealing to posterity on grounds now vague, chiefly that of having placed certain moors under tribute. Four colossal negroes in very bad bronze are chained to the base of the monument, which forms with their assistance a sufficiently fantastic group. But to patronise the arts is not the line of the Livoronese, and for want of the slender annuity which would keep its precinct sacred, this curious memorial is buried in dockyard rubbish. I must add that on the other hand, there is a very well-conditioned and in attitude and gesture extremely natural and familiar statue of Cavour in one of the city squares, and in another a couple of effigies of recent Grand Dukes, represented, that is dressed, or rather undressed, in the character of heroes of Plutarch. Ligorne is a city of magnificent spaces, and it was so long a journey from the sidewalk to the pedestal of these images that I never took the time to go and read the inscriptions. And in truth, vaguely, I put the originals a grudge, and wished to know as little about them as possible, for it seemed to me that as patres patrae, in their degree, they might have decreed that the great blank ochre-faced piazza should be a trifle less ugly. There is a distinct amenity, however, in any experience of Italy, almost anywhere, and I shall probably, in the future, not be above sparing a light regret to several of the hours of which the one I speak of was composed. I shall remember a large, cool bourgeois villa in the garden of a noiseless suburb, a middle-aged Villa Franco. I owe it as a genial, pleasant pension, the tribute of recognition, roomy and stony as an Italian villa should be. I shall remember that as I sat in the garden and, looking up from my book, 
saw through a gap in the shrubbery the red house tiles against the deep blue sky and the grey underside of the ilex leaves turned up by the Mediterranean breeze, it was all still quite Tuscany, if Tuscany in the minor key. If you should naturally desire in such conditions a higher intensity, you have but to proceed by a very short journey to Pisa, where, for that matter, you will seem to yourself to have hung about a good deal already, and from an early age. Few of us can have had a childhood so unblessed by contact with the arts, as that one of its occasional diversions shan't have been a puzzled scrutiny of some alabaster model of the Leaning Tower, under a glass cover in a back parlour. Pisa and its monuments have, in other words, been industriously vulgarised. But it is astonishing how well they have survived the process. The charm of the place is in fact of a high order, and but partially foreshadowed by the famous crookedness of its campanile. I felt it irresistibly, and yet almost inexpressibly, the other afternoon, as I made my way to the classic corner of the city through the warm, drowsy air, which nervous people come to inhale as a sedative. I was with an invalid companion who had had no sleep to speak of for a fortnight. Ah, stop the carriage, she sighed, or yawned, as I could feel deliciously, in the shadow of this old slumbering palazzo, and let me sit here and close my eyes and taste for an hour of oblivion. Once strolling over the grass, however, out of which the quartet of marble monuments rises, we awaked responsibly enough to the present hour. Most people remember the happy remark of tasteful, old-fashioned Forsyth, who touched a hundred other points in his Italy, scarce less happily, as to the fact that the four famous objects are, quote, fortunate alike in their society and their solitude, end quote. It must be admitted that they are more fortunate in their society than we felt ourselves to be in ours, for the scene presented the animated appearance for which, on any fine spring day, all the choicest haunts of ancient quietude in Italy are becoming yearly more remarkable. There were clamorous beggars at all the sculptured portals, and bait for beggars in abundance trailing in and out of them, under convoy of loquacious Ciceroni. I forget just how I apportioned the responsibility of intrusion, for it was not long before fellow tourists and fellow countrymen became a vague deadened, muffled presence, that of the dentist's last words when he's giving you ether. They suffered mystic disintegration in the dense, bright, tranquil air so charged with its own messages. The cathedral and its companions are fortunate indeed in everything, fortunate in the spacious angle of the grey old city wall, which folds about them in their sculptured elegance like a strong protecting arm, fortunate in the broad greensward which stretches from the marble base of the cathedral and cemetery to the rugged foot of the rampart. 
fortunate in the little vagabonds who dropped the grass, plucking daisies and exchanging Italian cries, fortunate in the pale gold tone to which time and the soft sea-damp have mellowed and darkened their marble plates, fortunate above all in an indescribable grace of grouping, half hazard, half design, which ensures them in one's memory of things admired very much the same isolated corner that they occupy in the charming city. Of the smaller cathedrals of Italy I know none I prefer to that of Pisa, none that on a moderate scale produces more the impression of a great church. It has, without so modest a measurability, represents so clean and compact a mass that you are startled when you cross the threshold of the apparent space it encloses. An architect of genius, for all that he works with colossal blocks and cumbrous pillars, is certainly the most cunning of conjurers. The front of the Duomo is a small pyramidal screen covered with delicate carvings and chasings, distributed over a series of short columns upholding narrow arches. It might be a sort imitation of goldsmith's work in stone, and the area covered is apparently so small that extreme fineness has been prescribed. How is it, therefore, that on the inner side of this façade the wall should appear to rise to a splendid height and to support one end of a ceiling as remote in its gilded grandeur, one could almost fancy, as that of St. Peter's? How is it that the nave should stretch away in such solemn vastness, the narrow transepts emphasise the grand impression, and the apse of the choir hollow itself out like a dusky cabin fretted with golden stalactites? Is all a matter for exposition by a keener architectural analyst than I? To sit somewhere against a pillar where the vista is large and the incidents cluster richly and vaguely revolve these mysteries without answering them, is the best of one's usual enjoyment of a great church. It takes no deep sounding to conclude, indeed, that a gigantic Byzantine Christ in mosaic on the concave roof of the choir contributes largely to the particular impression here as of very old and choice and original and individual things. It has even more of a stiff solemnity than is common to works of its school and prompts to more wonder than ever on the nature of the human mind at a time when such unlovely shapes could satisfy its conception of holiness. Truly pathetic is the fate of these huge mosaic idols, thanks to the change that has overtaken our manner of acceptance of them. Strong the contrast between the original sublimity of their pretensions and the way in which they flatter that free sense of the grotesque which the modern imagination has smuggled even into the appreciation of religious forms. They were meant to yield scarcely to the deity itself in grandeur, 
but the only part they play now is to stare helplessly at our critical, our aesthetic patronage of them. The spiritual refinement marking the hither end of a progress hadn't, however, to wait for us to signalise it. It found expression three centuries ago in the beautiful specimen of the painter Sodoma on the wall of the choir. This latter, a small sacrifice of Isaac, is one of the best examples of its exquisite author, and perhaps, as chance has it, the most perfect opposition that could be found in the way of the range of taste to the effect of the great mosaic. There are many painters more powerful than Sodoma, painters who, like the author of the mosaic, attempted encompassed grandeur. But none has a more persuasive grace, none more than he, was to sift and chasten a conception till it should affect one with the sweetness of a perfectly distilled perfume. Of the patient successive efforts of painting to arrive at the supreme refinement of such a work as a Sodoma, the Campo Santo hard by offers the most interesting memorial. It presents a long blank marble wall to the relative profaneness of the cathedral close, but within it is a perfect treasure house of art. This quadrangular defence surrounds an open court where weeds and wild roses are tangled together, and a sunny stillness seems to rest consentingly, as if nature had been won to consciousness of the precious relics committed to her. Something in the quality of the place recalls the collegiate cloisters of Oxford, but it must be added that this is the handsomest compliment to that seat of learning. The open arches of the quadrangles of Magdalen and Christchurch are not of mellow Carrara marble, nor do they offer to sight columns slim and elegant that seem to frame the unglazed windows of a cathedral. To be buried in the Campo Santo of Pisa, I may, however, further qualify, you need only be, or to have more or less anciently been, illustrious, and there is a liberal allowance both as to the character and degree of your fame. The most obtrusive object in one of the long vistas is the most complicated monument to Madame Catalani, the singer, recently erected by her possibly too appreciative heirs. The wide pavement is a mosaic of sepulchral slabs, and the walls below the base of the paling frescoes are encrusted with inscriptions and encumbered with urns and antique sarcophagi. The place is at once a cemetery and a museum, and its especial charm is its strange mixture of the active and the passive, of art and rest, of life and death. Originally, its walls were one vast continuity of closely pressed frescoes. But now the great capricious scars and stains have come to outnumber the pictures, and the cemetery has grown to be a burial place of pulverised masterpieces, as well as of finished lives. The fragments of painting that remain are fortunately the best, for one is safe in believing that a host 
of undimmed neighbours would distract but little from the two great works of Orcania. Most people know the triumph of death and the last judgment from descriptions and engravings, but to measure the possible good faith of imitative art, we must stand there and see the painter's howling potentates dragged into hell in all the vividness of his bright, hard colouring. See his feudal courtiers on their palfreys hold their noses at what they are so fast coming to. See his great Christ in judgment refuse forgiveness with a gesture commanding enough, really inhuman enough, to make virtue merciless forever. The charge that Michelangelo borrowed his cursing saviour from this great figure of Orcania is more valid than most accusations of plagiarism, but of the two figures, one at least could be spared, for direct triumphant expressiveness, these two superb frescoes have probably never been surpassed. The painter aims at no very delicate meanings, but he drives certain gross ones home so effectively that for a parallel to his process, one must look to the art of the actor, the emphasising point-making mime. Some of his female figures are superb. They represent creatures of a formidable temperament. There are charming women, however, on the other side of the cloister, in the beautiful frescoes of Benozzo Gozzoli. If Ocania's work was appointed to survive the ravage of time, it is a happy chance that it should be balanced by a group of performances of such a different temper. The contrast is the more striking that in subject, the inspiration of both painters is strictly, even though superficially, theological, but Benozzo cares in his theology for nothing but the story, the scene, the drama, the chance to pile up palaces and spires in his backgrounds against pale blue skies cross-barred with pearly fleecy clouds, and to scatter sculptured arches and shady trellises over the front, with every incident of human life going forward lightly and gracefully beneath them. Lightness and grace are the painter's great qualities, marking the hithermost limit of unconscious elegance, after which style and science and the wisdom of the serpent set in. His charm is natural fineness. A little more and we should have refinement, which is a very different thing. Like all les délicats of this world, as Monsieur Renan calls them, Benozzo has suffered greatly. The space on the walls he originally covered with his Old Testament stories is immense, but his exquisite handiwork has peeled off by the acre, as one may almost say, and the latter compartments of the series are swallowed up in huge white scars, out of which a helpless head or hand peeps forth, like those of creatures sinking into a quicksand. As for Pisa at large, 
although it is not exactly what one would call a mouldering city, for it has a certain well-aired cleanliness and brightness, even in its supreme tranquillity. It affects the imagination very much in the same way as the Campo Santo. And in truth, a city so ancient and deeply historic as Pisa is at every step but the burial ground of a larger life than its present one. The wide, empty streets, the goodly Tuscan palaces, which look as if about all of them, there were a genteel private understanding, independent of placards, that they are to be let extremely cheap, the delicious, relaxing air, the full-flowing yellow river, the lounging pisani, smelling metaphorically their poppy flowers, seem to me all so many admonitions to resignation and oblivion. And this is what I mean by saying that the charm of Pisa, apart from its cluster of monuments, is a charm of a high order. The architecture has but a modest dignity, the lions are few, there are no fixed points for stopping and gaping, and yet the impression is profound. The charm is a moral charm. If I were ever to be incurably disappointed in life, if I had lost my health, my money or my friends, if I were resigned forevermore to pitching my expectations in a minor key, I should go and invoke the Pisan peace. Its quietude would seem something more than a stillness, a hush. Pisa may be a dull place to live in, but it's an ideal place to wait for death. Nothing could be more charming than the country between Pisa and Lucca, unless possibly the country between Lucca and Pistoia. If Pisa is dead Tuscany, Lucca is Tuscany still living and enjoying, desiring and intending. The town is a charming mixture of antique character and modern inconsequence and not only the town, but the country, the blooming romantic country, which you admire from the famous promenade on the city wall. The wall is of a superbly solid and intensely toned brickwork and of extraordinary breadth, and its summit, planted with goodly trees and swelling here and there into bastions and outworks and little open gardens, surrounds the city with a circular lounging place of a splendid dignity. This well-kept shady ivy-grown rampart reminded me of certain mossy corners of England, but it looks away to a prospect of more than English loveliness, a broad green plain where the summer yields a double crop of grain and a circle of bright blue mountains speckled with high-hung convents and profiled castles and nestling villas, and traversed by valleys of a deeper and duskier blue. In one of the deepest and shadiest of these recesses, one of the most sympathetic of small watering places is hidden away yet a while longer from easy invasion. The baths, 
to which Luca has lent its name. Luca is preeminently a city of churches. Ecclesiastical architecture being indeed the only one of the arts to which it seems to have given attention. There are curious bits of domestic architecture, but no great palaces, no importunate frequency of pictures. The cathedral, however, sums up the merits of its companions, and is a singularly noble and interesting church. Its peculiar boast is a wonderful inlaid front, on which horses and hounds and hunted beasts are lavishly figured in black marble over a white ground. What I chiefly appreciated in the grey solemnity of the nave and transepts was the superb effect of certain second-story Gothic arches, those which rest on the pavement being Lombard. These arches are delicate and slender like those of the cloister at Pisa, and they play their part in the dusky upper air with real sublimity. At Pistoia there is, of course, a cathedral, and there is nothing unexpected in its being externally, at least, highly impressive, in its having a grand campanile at its door, a gaudy baptistry, in alternate layers of black and white marble across the way, and a stately civic palace on either side. But even had I the space to do otherwise, I should prefer to speak less of the particular objects of interest in the place than of the pleasure I found it to lounge away in the empty streets the quiet hours of a warm afternoon. To say where I lingered longest would be to tell of a little square before the hospital, out of which you look up at the beautiful frieze in coloured earthenware by the brothers della Robbia, which runs across the front of the building. It represents the seven orthodox officers of charity, and with its brilliant blues and yellows and its tender expressiveness, brightens up amazingly to the sense and soul this little grey corner of the medieval city. Pistoia is still medieval, how grass-grown it seemed, how drowsy, how full of idle vistas and melancholy nooks. If nothing was supremely wonderful, everything was delicious. 1874, end of section 32.